Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Up your voice. 
and welcome to Awaken. A couple of announcements real quick before we get going. Uh, actually, just one, uh, but they are related. That is, some of you are probably enjoying some coffee right now. Uh, thanks to Wildflyer Coffee and the good friends of Awaken, we have delivered some coffee to those of you who have signed up for it. So hopefully you're enjoying that. And somebody has the book dragon. This is the last time I'm going to have the book dragon here in the podcast room. And uh, I, I got to be honest, I'm excited. I'm really excited, but I'm a, little, I'm a little anxious about next week. So here's the deal, if you don't know. The Book Dragon is in a, an, an unsuspecting person's coffee bag. And when you open it, you realize, oh my gosh, I have a Book Dragon. Not a bookworm, but a Book Dragon. So your job now is to take this Book Dragon and like bless the socks off of somebody else at Awaken. So put together a little care package and you're going to deliver it to somebody after you clean it, of course, and then when they get it, their job is to take it, uh, put a care package together, and bless somebody else at Awaken. So it's just going to be blessings all around. Like the world needs more joy, more anticipation, more fun. And so um, this is how we're going to do it. Uh, It's a creative idea. I did it once with a pink flamingo, but now we're using a book dragon. So that's that. Um, Kids, be looking for the book dragon, and if you find it, you got to have some creative idea to bless your friends. All right? Okay, now let's pick up our series. We are in uh, the sixth week of a series in the book of Acts entitled Implications and where we, like the first Christians, are asking, like, what are the implications of Jesus' resurrection? Uh, Jesus of Nazareth, son of a carpenter who claimed to be the Messiah and the Christ, who taught us to love our enemies, to lay down our lives for each other, crucified by the Romans, resurrected three days later on the day we call Easter. Hard to believe Easter was six weeks ago, right? But what does that mean? Like, so what? Uh, What does it mean for the people who heard it first? What does it mean for you and I in 2020? These are the questions we're considering. And so last week, we looked at the story of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. And I encouraged you to not freeze the text, to, to sort of follow the through lines, the trajectory that the living word is leading us on, and to love the Bible, know the Bible, be in the Bible, but don't stop with the Bible. Like Jesus doesn't seem to stop with the Torah. He goes, you've heard it said this, but I say to you this. Paul seems to go beyond. The spirit continues to go beyond the text in the text. So I don't know why we're so afraid of that as evangelicals, but either way, don't freeze the text. Keep going. Follow the living word. That's what we're after. And then I talked about this idea of the universalizing message and nature of Luke's gospel. 
in the book of Acts and in, in his story, Luke. Um, so that story last week in Acts chapter 8, the story we're in today, Acts 10 and 11, and then the story we're going to be in next week, Acts 15, these are all stories about sort of exploring the deep questions about the nature of boundaries, like who gets in? How far does this thing go? Like, does it include that guy <laughs> or those people? So Jesus in Acts chapter 1 says to the people who are standing there looking at him in the sky, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So Acts 2 is Jerusalem. Acts 8, Philip is in Samaria. Acts 10 and 11, we're talking about the Romans who rule to the ends of the earth. So Acts is happening before our very eyes. Today, we're talking about Peter. We're talking about the uncircumcised Roman Gentile convert in Acts 10 and 11. And my sermon is entitled, It Goes Both Ways. I want to talk about inclusion and welcome, specificity and particularity, and I want to talk about Rumi and the bankruptcy of labels. It's going to be good, friends. So let's dig into this. Acts chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, open them, and if you can stand, I would invite you to. Uh, I thought about how much of this to read because it's a bit long, and then I was like, it's just a great story, so we're going to read the whole darn thing. So we're going to read all of chapter 10 and a bit of chapter 11, and then we're going to dive in. So here we go. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and his family were devout, God-fearing, and gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and the gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on a roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and saw something like a large sheet being let down by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as birds and reptiles. Then a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back up to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking Simon if who was known as Peter was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. Set up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them for I have sent them. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said, oh no, I already read that, sorry. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? And the men replied, we have come for, from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who's respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. And Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day they started out with them. Some of the believers from Joppa went along. And the following day he arrived at Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. And Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. 
While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or visit with a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. I don't know if that's a good lead-in at a party, but either way. <laughs> so when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? And Cornelius answered, three days ago I was in my house at this hour. Three in the afternoon, suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send, send a Joppa for Simon, who's called Peter. He is in a guest in the house of Simon the Tanner, who lived by the sea. And so I sent for you immediately, and it was good for you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. And then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on the cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, and everyone who believes in him for, receives forgiveness of sin through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Pray with me. God, this morning as we... Uh, Tune our hearts into this word that you've offered and this story that's been told and captured. I pray that your church gathered would hear a fresh word from you, that we would hear and experience and maybe even see the living word uh, alive and well in the world and beckoning, inviting, calling us to be the kinds of people you have uh, created us to be. So to that end, I pray and all the people said together, amen and amen. So you'll hear a little bit more about verse, chapter 11, which is where Peter goes back to Jerusalem and some of his Jewish friends have some words about what he's just done, um, but we'll get there in a minute. Uh, so inclusion and welcome, specificity and particularity, roomy and the bankruptcy of labels. So let's start with a question. Like what is at play in this story? Like what's the cliff notes, okay? Jesus dies, he's resurrected, and the message begins to move throughout the world, starting in Jerusalem, then to Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. Uh, through the whole book of Acts, the story, this message about Jesus is like, it keeps expanding, it keeps breaking down barriers that were previously upheld socially, culturally, religious barriers. It was welcoming more and more and more people, kind of like concentric circles, like a ripple in a pond. And the problem that keeps rearing its ugly head is that this Jewish and Gentile distinction um, and the requirements therein, like what is required of a Gentile uh, who converts into Israel. Like, what, what's required of a Gentile to be included in, in the people of God at that point, known as Israel? Now, Peter is a Jew. His whole life has been wrapped up in these customs and these rules, in Torah, really. 
And, and these rules have set apart Israel in, in the world, among other nations in the ancient world. And so two of those rules, which are at the heart and soul of Israel's life, are circumcision and dietary laws. And they are in front and center. They are in play in Acts 10 and 11. So here's the rub. For like a good observant Jew, what is required of the Gentiles? These people who are coming into and converting into this movement. And what about the rules and the regulations and the interpretation of those rules, which have been in place for centuries as it relates to the interactions between Jews and Gentiles? This is the controversy of Acts 10 and 11. So Cornelius, the uncircumcised Gentile, he has a vision to, in, uh, and invites Peter, the Torah-observant Jew, who's now a follower of Jesus, but still like ethnically Jewish and even in practice, we can assume. Peter receives a vision that changes some of the categories of clean and unclean as it relates to diet and what you're to eat. And he's told not to call unclean what God has now called clean. So he doesn't oppose the invitation of the Gentile, the Roman, Cornelius. He goes to meet with them. And beyond that, he eats with them which is a huge statement about like intimacy and family and what it means to be connected to someone. So uh, he tells the uncircumcised Gentile Romans about Jesus the Messiah. The spirit of God is poured out. People are getting baptized upon their profession of faith and all seems fine and well until Peter returns to Jerusalem and his friends are indignant. These Jewish leaders, these religious folks, they can't believe it. They say to him, you went into the house of an uncircumcised man and you ate with him, inferring these people are unclean. They have not become Jewish by custom and Peter should not have entered their house, let alone eaten with them, which would have been consistent with their laws and their interpretation and living out of what Moses had been given in Torah generations before. So Peter's like, listen, gang, I, I don't know what to tell you except for the fact that the spirit of God was poured out they got baptized, and I said, if, if, or he says to them, if God gave them the same gift he gave us, who believed in Jesus, who was I to stand in God's way? A couple of his friends there are like, well, that's actually not a bad point. And so they have no further objections. They say, so then, even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So this is Acts 10 and 11 in a nutshell. Now let's take it up a click. Let's ask, like, how do we interpret it? What's going on here? How do we understand the conflict therein? Now, many people read this passage and the passage we, we studied last week in Acts chapter 8 and others like it, and the conclusion that they make is that it doesn't matter. Like it's all about tolerance and subjectivity and God's heart is inclusive and welcoming and so in the end, regardless of your tradition, regardless of your religion, beliefs or unbeliefs, all roads lead to God. Everybody gets saved, everybody gets in, love wins. That wasn't the point of Rob Bell's book. Everybody thought it was, it wasn't. But either way, it's like a universalism, right? Um, the divine heart and intention is the inclusion of everyone and everything. I think that's a mistake. I think to read this passage and others like it and to come to that conclusion is a mistake. And it's a misreading of Acts. I think it's a misreading of the New Testament. And if I would be so bold, which no surprise to anybody I'm about to be. I think it's a misreading of the whole Bible. While I do believe God's heart is for the inclusion of and the redemption of all created things, the story of the scripture, or the story of scripture, the story of the scripture is making a very specific claim that comes into sharp focus in Acts and, then, and again in Romans, that while God's intent and heart is for the redemption of all things, that God has acted in and through the Christ, 
who became incarnate in Jesus, who lived the life we were meant to live, who died the death we would all die, and defeats death in his resurrection and declares to the worst thing possible, death, that you have been swallowed up once and for all by life and love. I used to play hockey as a kid, and um, in youth hockey, there's all kinds of crazy characters. There always are. And one of them was Mr. Whistler. He was the parent of uh, Ryan, who was, a, I think, a right winger, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Mr. Whistler, if you're out there and watching and listening, I still think about you. Uh, he got hot and bothered by a few things. Um, <laughs> and every now and again, he would kind of lose his cool. He actually got kicked out of a game one time. Uh, we had a female referee, which wasn't common in like the late 80s, and she made a bad call, and he made some just horribly sexist comment about her being a referee, and she booted him right out of the rink, like carried him out by the scruff of his neck. Good for you. You should have kicked him out. So Mr. Whistler, at one point in this game, we're, we're, uh, it's close, it's like third period, and as refs, like you kind of have to balance the marbles, you know, if you know uh, sports at all, like you can't just keep putting marbles from one jar into the other the whole game, like calling penalties or fouls on one team, you got to even it out. So late in the game, it's tight, it's a, it's a close game, and there's a questionable call, uh, and the ref calls a penalty on our team. Mr. Whistler loses his mind. He cannot believe it. He's like, this is ridiculous. He's hollering, shouting from the stands. Well, a few minutes later, another questionable call happens uh, that would have been on the other team, and the ref doesn't call it. And Mr. Whistler stands up from the crowds, and he's like, you gotta call it both ways! Like, have you ever been in a conversation with somebody, a spouse or a friend, and you're like, hey, this is a two-way street here. It's got to go both ways. You know what I'm talking about, right? I think that this metaphor is actually helpful here. God's heart is inclusive. It is welcoming. It is as big as you can possibly imagine. And God has acted in and through the particular and the specific life of Jesus Christ. It goes both ways. So, like, what's all the fuss? Why does it seem so hard for the Jewish leaders in the Gospels in the book of Acts to get on board with this Jesus? And the answer to that question is the heart of the New Testament and the Christian story, quite frankly. What is the basis for inclusion? Like, what's the grounds upon which someone is welcomed and included into participation in the life of God, with the family of God? And it seems quite clear in this passage in Acts 10 that the Jewish leaders who were opposed to Peter at first and then who debate circumcision in Acts 15 are lobbying for one thing, and that thing is Jesus plus observance to Torah, dietary laws, and circumcision. While on the other hand, the apostles of Jesus, Peter eventually, the Spirit of God for sure, seem to be lobbying for another basis for inclusion, and that is faith in Christ and the faithfulness of Christ. Here's one way to think about the role of Israel in the story of God. Torah circumcision, dietary laws, as the basis for inclusion, were a number of chapters in the story. Said differently, the basis for inclusion to God's family and participation in the divine life for many chapters in the story of God was dietary laws, circumcision, and observe, Torah observance. That's true. Now, they are not, it is not the last chapter in the story. That chapter is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Christ, which becomes the new basis for inclusion into the family. 
Imagine this, if you will, a mother standing on the side of the road. Her child is on the other side of the road and it's a busy street. The kid's about to cross the street and the mom screams, stop, don't cross the street. Stay where you are. The child does. A moment later, when the, the mother realizes that the traffic has stopped and the street is clear, she says to the child, cross the street now. She hasn't contradicted herself by, by offering those two commands. In fact, the initial command was the right one for the time. Indeed, it is because she wanted the child to cross the street in the end that she told them to stand still for a moment. You see, the struggle between the apostles who were preaching faith, the faith in Christ as the basis for inclusion and the religious leaders of Israel who were struggling to make the transition goes on for the entirety of the New Testament. It's in the Gospels, it's in Acts, it's in Romans. It's the, it's the book of Colossians in a nutshell. And for good reason, like imagine being among the Jewish people and in the religious establishment of the Jewish people. And in some ways, the rules change like right underneath your feet. After hundreds and hundreds of years, generations, it's been this way. And now it changes and some are having a harder time with it than others. And rightfully so. Here's the point that's important for us to see as we read Acts 10 and 11. The basis for and the energy behind the inclusionary and welcoming heart of God shifts to the person of Jesus through his death and his resurrection. Some people would say that like Torah and Israel, the whole thing's exclusionary. And I would argue that's a complete misread. Torah and the law actually made a way by which people from the outside of the family could enter. So even in the Old Testament, when the basis for inclusion was Torah observance and like there is a means by which, a mechanism by which someone from the outside, a person or a family could enter the divine community. And that was Torah, dietary laws, and circumcision. And then when the street was clear and the timing was right, God announced to the universe, okay, now you can cross the street. And the mechanism, the means by which someone is included into the family of God shifts to the specific work of Christ on the cross and the particularity of Jesus of Nazareth. It goes both ways. This is the claim of the Christian story. It's universal and inclusive. It's the welcoming heart of God in the specific and particular work and person of Jesus the Christ. This is why the Spirit's poured out on Cornelius and his Gentile friends, because of their faith in Christ. Now, universal, welcome, specific and particular. What does this have to do with Rumi and the bankruptcy of labels? In the passage of Acts, I think we see on display one of the many examples in scripture where the natural dualistic human tendency to label and determine who's in and who's out is on view for all to see. See, like as humans, we love clear lines. We love either or scenarios. Neurologists can confirm that our brains prefer to operate in this space where it's like these declarative and unambiguous spaces we will take all all day long. So this is how we slice up the world that we live in. The more certainty we can have in any given moment, we will take it. So something is beautiful or ugly, good or bad, true or false, Democrat or Republican. East Coast, West Coast, Catholic, Protestant, Coke, Pepsi, saved, not saved. This is our dualistic mind at work and on display. And quite honestly, it's really not very high level thinking. 
it's, it's quite childish in terms of developmental psychology. But it feels so good. Now, there's a famous poem by Rumi that is part of a longer poem called The Great Wagon. Nobody ever reads the whole poem. I did, actually, this week. It's beautiful, lovely. He says this, Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I will meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. The breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You must ask for what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are going back and forth across the door sill where the two worlds touch. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. What's the poem, what's the, the poet saying? Like, out beyond right doing and wrong doing, there is a field, I will meet you there. Like anything goes, there is no right or wrong. It doesn't actually matter. I don't think that's what he's talking about at all. I think Rumi knows something about humans. Something that we see present in Acts 10. Acts 15, Acts 17, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. You get what I'm saying. It's present everywhere. It's still present. It's present in you and it's present in me. And that is our innate capacity and desire to determine who's in and who's out. Who's good? Who's bad? Who's the friend? Who's the enemy? Rumi invites us beyond these labels, these distinctions, these ways that we divide the world up because our ideas of right and wrong and who is in what category, beyond those ideas, there lies a serene place, a possibility. In this field, which is void of labels and judgments, there is, there is an absolute connectedness, a oneness, a shared sense of humanity. As he puts it, even the phrase each other won't make any sense when we realize our oneness and our commonality with everything and everyone. See, in our minds, I'm separate from you and you're separate from me. We love to separate ourselves from others, from our neighbors, and especially the other, that guy or those people. Even animals, we think we're separate from the animals and nature. And in the end, friends, the truth, the truth of the matter is that Christ is all and is in all. Don't think I'm a new ager. Paul said it in Colossians. Christ is all and is in all. The same energy is, is, is present in all of it. So don't go back to sleep. Don't go back to the dualistic and binary ways that we split up the world into these certain categories where there are good guys and bad guys, saved and unsaved, and you're sure you know who is who. Become awake to the reality out beyond those desires we have to determine and distinguish where the universal and welcoming heart of God is loose in the world. And that heart, that spirit, that energy is the Christ. The same energy that animated the person named Jesus, the same energy that drove that Jesus to walk to Calvary, the same energy that uh, died on a cross and resurrected from the dead so that any and all might have life and life to the full, even the Gentile, even the Sikh, even the Buddhist, even the Muslim, even the gay, even the Democrat, even the Republican, even the white, even the indigenous, even the upper class, even the lower class, even the fill in the blank. Christ 
is the universal. Jesus is the particular. And all the labels that we put on each other, they're not worth anything in the end. They're bankrupt. So Acts chapter 10 and 11 is the story of God's spirit, loose, roaming out beyond the boundaries, the social, the religious, the political, the cultural boundaries of its day, pushing, following, or, or on a trajectory towards the redemption, the restoration, the reclamation of all things God made and called good. The question for Cornelius was, do you see it? Do you feel it? Do you know it? Can you name it? Arguably, that question still stands. Pray with me. God, before we take just a few moments of silence to consider this story, this amazing story about your spirit, the resurrected Christ, moving out beyond maybe the ways in which we feel safe or the ways in which the things that were good for a time, but that are, but the chapter is over and a new chapter is being written. And so I pray for my friends and the church, this church awaken and the church globally. God, that you would give us the courage to seek what is true. To find that in the spirit of Christ that is alive and well in the world and in us. That we would seek to, to weigh those things that we deem worthy of following and pursuing the things that we think are life-giving, that we would weigh them, that we would consult with scripture and with, with you, that, with the people that we're in community with. And then in doing so, God, you would lead us to that which is life-giving. That maybe there would be some surprises for us like there was for Peter. Peter, stand up, kill and eat. That which you have deemed unclean is now no longer. Enjoy. So Holy Spirit, lead us, I pray. Speak to us. Give us the words, the pictures, the images that we need to see and hear, I pray.
So as we make our way to the table, uh, receive and hear these words. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you eat of it, remember me. Like, don't forget. In the same way, he took a cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is my blood shed for you. A new covenant, a new deal between God and humanity. A new basis for the inclusion into God's family. Whenever you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. So this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love God, those who want to love God more. So come you who have much faith, you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been here for a long time or ever before, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. So come not because I invite you or because the church invites you, but because the risen Christ invites you to come and be fed and be known here at the table. As you take the bread, receive these words. The body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat. As you take the cup, receive these words. The, body, the blood of Christ shed for you. Take and drink. As we close this morning, uh, it's my hope and my prayer for you, for me, for us, that we would open up that coming in contact with these stories and this person of Jesus would expand us that we would no longer be afraid or fear getting it wrong, but that we would trust that the Spirit of God is present in you and in me and in our community and in the scriptures, and that that Spirit is longing to lead us to life and truth and light so we can follow that. So whatever ways that this is bumping up against maybe ideas or things that you have held dear. Um, I trust that the spirit will be gentle and will continue to invite and lead and prompt you. So uh, it's a wild world out there, friends, and God is up to things and inviting us to participate in it. And so um, I, I don't want us to be like the church and the apostles often in the book of Acts who are like showing up late to the scene and saying, oh, wow, Clearly, the Spirit of God is here and has been here for a while. We just didn't know it. So let's wake up. Let's not stay asleep. Leave with this blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said together. Amen. Grace and peace, friends. at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.